Welcome to a special edition of The Look and Sound of Leadership. I'm Tom Henschel, and today I'm going to tell a story about The Show Must Go On. It's a true story of a real-life theater calamity. The story was prompted because I used the phrase, The Show Must Go On, during the episode called The Executive Executive, uh, which was January 2021. In the episode, I kind of stopped the episode and I said, you know, whenever I use that phrase, the show must go on, two thoughts happen simultaneously in my head. One is that that was my religion for a long time. The show must go on. I I remember in high school performing with a raging fever. I should have been home in bed, but the show must go on. Uh, I broke my ankle on stage. I finished the scene. The show must go on. I got whacked bad with a broadsword one night. Wow. And I pretended it didn't happen because it wasn't supposed to happen, so I just went on because the show must go on, right? That's my religion. That's one thought that happens. And the second thought that happens at the same instant is I was on stage one night when the show did not go on. And that's the story I want to tell you. The story begins in 1980. When I was an actor in Los Angeles, it was a Sunday night. I was sitting at home in my apartment, and the reason I remember it's a Sunday night is because I was watching the Tony Awards, which is a live broadcast from New York City where they give out the Tony Awards on Broadway. The Tony Awards in the United States are the equivalent to Broadway to the Oscars are in Hollywood. I had a local interest in the Tony Awards this year, Because a play that had originated in Los Angeles at a theater where I had worked many times, the Mark Taper Forum, they had sent a play from there to New York where plays usually go to die, and it had become a big hit. It was nominated for four Tony Awards, Best Playwright, Best Director, Best Actress, Best Actor. Wow. So I'm watching that night to see the results of this play. This play, by the way, is called Children of a Lesser God. The actress who was nominated for Best Actress was a woman named Phyllis Freilich, who I had not seen, but I had read a lot about. She was a deaf actress, and the playwright, Mark Medoff, who was a well-known American playwright, had written this play for her. And look what happened. Four Tony nominations and Phyllis one that night. And here's what I remember. I remember her walking down the aisle, walking up the stairs, and right behind her is a man following her up onto the stage. And she comes to the podium, and he's still right behind her. Someone handed her her Tony Award. She put it down on the podium, and she lifted up her hands, and she started to sign her acceptance speech. And the man, who was right over her shoulder at this point, was voicing for her. And I saw this and was entranced. I was in love. I was like, I want to learn that. And I did. That night began my journey into American Sign Language and deafness. I studied and I actually got good enough that I became certified to interpret in schools for kids. And I translated a Shakespeare play into American Sign Language. It was a time of great joy. And then my two lives came together, sign language and theater. Mark Medoff wrote another play for Phyllis. Now, this play was not going to be about deafness, but it had deafness in it, right? 
And so I became part of this theater company. I was in the cast. It was a cast of eight of us. And it was going to have its world premiere again at the Mark Taper Forum, just like Children of a Lesser God. So a lot of eyes were on us. It was an exciting time. The name of this play was The Hands of Its Enemy. And the play is about an amateur playwright, a woman who happens to be deaf, who has written a play about a father's relationship to his young daughter. And she has brought it to a professional theater company in her community. And the play is good enough that they agree to put it on, but it's not great yet. And she agrees, but the person she wants to work on the play is this washed-up maniac of a director who is a big, loose cannon. But in fact, that happens. The play of the hands of its enemy is the story of the evolution of this piece of art, this play that this amateur woman playwright has written, and this theater director. The conflict of the play is that the theater director senses there is some truth in this play somewhere, but that she has it hidden. And if she doesn't take this truth out into the light of day and put it on the stage, then this piece of art is going to be stillborn. She was not intending to out herself when she wrote this play. She is protecting herself like crazy because she's not psychologically ready to divulge her secret. Pretty serious, huh? Well, get this. The director's right. She has a secret. What's revealed in the second act is that the secret is about childhood sexual abuse. And she, of course, has written the daughter as a surrogate for herself. She has a horrible secret. In 1984, childhood sexual abuse was not in the news. In 1984, childhood sexual abuse certainly wasn't dinner table conversation. But that's what our play was about. We were going to take this audience on a really dark journey as these people explored this piece of art and tried to put on a play. Most people do not flock to see a play about something shocking like childhood sexual abuse. But oh my... In 1984 and 1985, we were an enormous success in Los Angeles theater. We started at the Mark Taper Forum, where there's about 750 seats, and we sold out every night, and there were lines at the box office every night. We were such a big hit. There was another play coming into the Mark Taper after us, and we had to leave, but we went to a bigger theater in Hollywood, a theater with a balcony and 1,100 seats, And we sold out there, and there were lines at the box office every night. We were a huge hit. But think about this. This is a play about childhood sexual abuse. Like, what is getting them to come to the theater every night, right? Like, whoa, what's that? That's impressive. Well, one thing is that playing the washed-up director was Richard Dreyfuss. Richard Dreyfuss is a movie star. Richard Dreyfuss is an Academy Award-winning actor. Richard Dreyfuss has been around a long time. He's really funny. And he's great on stage. And there's Phyllis, and she is great on stage. But that alone can't get people up on their feet every night. We knew exactly what it was, which was Mark wrote a hilarious first act of these theater people being theater people, and they were just really funny, smart, witty, but nasty, and oh my. And it was fun. It was delicious. And the audience went with us because they didn't know 
Maybe they knew by word of mouth at a certain point, but they were willing because we were so funny until about three minutes before the end of the first act. Three minutes before the end of the first act in a big scene that all of us are on stage to witness. One tiny corner of this secret gets revealed and we on stage are all like, yeah, yeah, okay, here we go. But the audience is like, ooh, because they didn't see it coming and we've just taken a turn and then there's a curtain, intermission, they come back for the second act, they find out that it's about childhood sexual abuse. One night, we're about five minutes away from the end of the first act. So the audience has been having a wonderful ride, but tension is building and Richard and Phyllis are down front towards the audience, right center stage. I am all the way over on the far side of the stage. From the audience, you would look and see me on your left. And I look across stage, and I'm looking at Phyllis's back, and I'm looking at Richard's face, and I'm in the scene watching this thing build when I notice significant activity in the front row. Look, the show must go on. I, I learned in junior high school, you don't look at the audience. They're not really there, right? You don't break that wall. But I knew that I could glance without you know, moving my nose or my chin. I could catch a glance and I look and the snapshot that I saw was of a man on the aisle in the front row crouched down, spinning out of his chair, running up the aisle as if for help. And next to him, one seat in, is a woman who looks like she's dead. Her head is back and her tongue is hanging out of her mouth. I had never seen that before. I snap my eyes back into the scene and I am thinking, what do we do? On the one hand, the show must go on, right? But oh my gosh, we have a dead woman in the front row. Like, oh my. And I am paralyzed. Luckily, I did not have to make the call because Richard figured out what was going on. He looks down at this woman. He takes two steps towards the audience. He looks up at the audience and he says to them directly, is there a doctor in the house? And it is met with complete and total silence. And he waits. And then he says, there's a woman here in the front row who's having a medical emergency. Is there someone who could help her? <laughs> at which point, of course, all hell breaks loose because it's theater in Los Angeles. Of course, there are doctors in the house. I mean, it's like half the theater is made up of doctors. In fact, at one point, really seriously, they were trying to get down the aisle. I'm a doctor. Let me through. No, I'm a doctor. It's okay. Like, it was like, oh my gosh. We have stopped the play. We look at each other on stage and go, are we going home? Like, what? What happens now? The person who makes that decision in a moment like that is the stage manager. In this theater, the stage manager's booth was all the way back up in the back of the balcony. And he was at such an angle that he could not see the front lip of the stage. We'd always known that. He certainly couldn't see the front row. He can't see the aisle. He has no idea what's going on. He's counting on us to kind of narrate for him. Meanwhile, he's on the phone with the theater management to find out what's going on. And we go, really? is the play over? And he goes, no, here's what's going to happen. He said, they're bringing a stretcher. They're going to take this woman out on a stretcher. When they do, I'm going to make an announcement to get everybody back in the seat. The play is going to resume. I'm going to take the lights down to half. I'll hold for a sec. Then I'm going to take the lights out. You stay off stage. We'll stay in black for five. Then I'll bring the lights up. You guys go out to your marks 
and we'll start from this line. And we go, okay. I mean, here's what we are thinking at this point is, of course we will. I mean, of course, the show must go on, but there's no way we're going to get them to go with us. I mean, we're about to take this big turn into this dark tunnel. Oh, well, let's give it our best. They take her out on a stretcher. He makes his announcement, lights go to half. They kind of quiet down, not really. Lights go out. They're still not terribly quiet. Count to five. Lights come up. We come out on stage, and the audience bursts into cheers and applause. We were not expecting that. It was like this wave of energy hit us. And what we knew was they were saying, we're in. We are in the play with you. Yes, that happened, but we're back. You do your job and we'll do ours. And we did. I mean, we took them out to the end of the first act with so much energy, you can imagine. Then we have intermission. We do the second act. It's fantastic. The audience, it goes crazy. And it ends up being a kind of triumphant night, except for this woman. Well, let me just tell you about her so that I can make sure that you don't worry about her. She was fine. It ends up that she had some kind of vasovagal response. Her blood pressure dropped, and she was fine. Uh, Within an hour, she was fine. We found out who she was, by the way. We sent her tickets. We asked her to please come back and see the play for real and to please come back afterwards because we wanted to talk to her. We wanted to meet her. She, in our life, was like a celebrity. She had given us this once-in-a-lifetime event, and it all turned out okay. So that was the end of her story. If the story ended there, I think it would be a pretty good story. You know, I think it would be a true story of a real-life theater calamity. Yeah, that's what that story is. But it didn't end there for me because I had a question. There was something I could not figure out. Here's my question. To us in the play, who had been with it from the very first draft of the play, months and months and hundreds of performances before, we knew the play inside and out. We knew the play had stopped the instant Richard broke away from Phyllis in that scene and looked at that woman in the front row. The play had clearly stopped. And to us, that was like shooting off a cliff at 80 miles an hour. I mean, that was really Thelma and Louise. But Richard said, is there a doctor in the house? And they could not comprehend it. It was met with silence. There was no action taken. They could not understand what he was asking of them until he asked again. And there was a long pause. And I was like, what's going on in people's brains? Think about this. You know what this reminded me of was they tell stories that Houdini, the great magician in the early part of the 20th century, used to walk an elephant off the stage and the audience thought the elephant had disappeared. Now think about that. That's, that's amazing. What happens to put an audience in a trance like that? That was the question I wanted an answer to. It so happened in an amazing coincidence. Months later, I found out that two of my friends, who did not know each other, by the way, separately, I found out in different phone calls that they both happened to have been in the theater that night. They said, you know, yeah, we came to see you in the play, and oh my God, we were there that night, that woman got sick, and I'm like, oh my God, well, can you answer this question? What was going on in your brain? Like, what what did you think happened? And they were both said almost identically. They said, well, it just seemed so natural. It seemed like part of the play. 
Now, what I know is there's no way that could be part of the play. In my logic, from my side of the footlights, that's impossible. That literally would be like having my car float up in the air. It's not possible. But to them, it clearly was. And I had to accept that as their truth on the other side of the footlights. As improbable as it is to me, they're going on the ride. They don't want to get off the ride. And I learned an amazing lesson that I guess I had known, but this really, really nailed it for me. The lesson is, if you have your audience's goodwill, they will not see your mistakes. They do not want to see your mistakes. They want to stay in that connection that's created, in that goodwill. That's where they want to be. I've been coaching people on presentation skills for 30 years. I bring that lesson in my heart. If you get goodwill with your audience, they will not see your mistakes, no matter how big they seem to you. For me, that lesson was always incredibly comforting, especially as I did more and more keynote speaking and all kinds of things. And even this podcast where, you know, if you have people's goodwill, they don't notice your mistakes. I love that lesson. I hope it's helpful for you. And thank you for letting me tell my story. Until next time, I'm Tom Henschel. Thank you so much for listening.